you are listening to the Invitation Church podcast. To learn more about Invitation Church, visit us online at invitation605.com. You can also download our app on iTunes and Google Play by searching for Invitation 605. All right, I'm Sarah Vandekamp, and I'll be reading our scripture this morning. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, and the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them, and they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. When they did, they found they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him for he had taken it off and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish for they were not far from the shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you have just caught. Simon Peter climbed aboard and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153. But even so, even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread, and gave it to them, and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus had appeared to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Awesome. Thanks, Sarah. So I want to talk to you this morning a little bit about what friends can get us into. You know, I've got a microphone. Uh, I could pass this around and I'm sure we could tell all kinds of stories. We've had all kinds of experiences about a moment when a friend got you into something. Maybe it was a good something, maybe it was a bad something, but who knows in the house today that friendship is a powerful reality of life, right? And so maybe a friend at one time or another like got you into this new TV show. You're like, hey, you are not a flourishing human being without watching this show. Or maybe it was a book. Maybe it was like a juice cleanse. Anybody have that friend in life? More of an enemy, if you ask me. But right, we, we've got all of these people, right, in our lives. They help shape who we are. And I think there's lots of things that shape us. There's lots of things that make us who we are. But maybe there's no powerful force like the force of friendship. And what I love about this story we're in this series where we're kind of continuing to walk through the book of John, and we're looking at what happens after Jesus is raised from the dead. We celebrated his resurrection on Easter, amazing, but we're continuing to walk through it to really ask, like, hey, like, what happens after that? Like, what happens after resurrection? And what I think is really powerful today, and what I don't want anybody in the house to miss is this resurrected Christ offering friendship to the disciples, offering friendship to you, 
and offering friendship to the world. And I know what some of you are thinking already. Uh-uh. He's a savior of the world. Like Jesus is not my homeboy. Some of you have seen the t-shirts from years ago. But I just want you to be open today to the reality and to the truth that John's screaming from the top of his lungs that Jesus is offering you friendship. He's offering you a place. He's offering you belonging. And of course, he's not a friend who comes and goes. Of course, he's not a friend who talks about you behind your back. Of course, he's a friend who's faithful. Of course, he's a friend who's good. Of course, he's a friend who's kind. And there are going to be some things that will happen to us as followers of Jesus if we neglect the friendship of God, if we push it away. Like if he's only Lord, if he's only Savior, if he's only Redeemer, the church words are coming out today, if he's only those things, there's something that we miss. And this is an interesting passage of Scripture. Let me catch you up on the book of John just a little bit if you're kind of coming into this uh, for the first time uh, today. In John chapter 13 through 17, we have the Last Supper. What's happening at the Last Supper, you're asking? Well, they're eating together one more time. They're remembering Egypt. They're remembering their ancestors and how they lived in the place of slavery. And God in his mercy, his grace, his kindness, his power, his covenant love, his, this Hebrew word chesed, like this love that goes on and on and on and on and on. You know that passage? I think it's Psalm 103 where it says, as, as far as the east is from the west, so far have your sins been removed from you. That word has said, if you look at it in the Hebrew, it comes up all the time, all the time, all the time, all the time, as far as the east is from the west. So the idea is you can't outchase it, you can't get beyond it. You can't choose anything that makes you unworthy of it. So they're having this supper, and Jesus is talking to his disciples about his kingdom, about what's important kind of sums up all of the healing, all of the teaching, all of the movement that they've enjoyed together over the last several years. And they have this meal. And then chapter 18 and 19, we see the arrest of Jesus. We see the suffering of Jesus. We see the torture of Jesus. And we see the death of Jesus. And then John chapter 20, we see resurrection, we see victory, we see Jesus being victorious over sin and death and evil and, and over Rome, all the, the government authorities who desired to get rid of him, to bury him, to bury him, bury his message, bury his way of life, to just close it all up and shut it all down. But Jesus is victorious over all of that. And so it's just a, a word to all of us today that even when it seems shut down, even when it seems dark, even when it seems lost, even when it seems over, the promise of God is that he's still at work. He's still living and moving and breathing into every single story and every single person's life who's seated in this room today and everybody who's out there too. Let's not forget about them. That's what resurrection means. And then... John chapter 21, it's sort of weird, because isn't the story over? Like, didn't like Jesus, like, he was like raised from the dead, and didn't he appear to some people? 
And then, like, that would feel like a really good time to end it. You know you're watching a movie, you're like, oh, this is the end. This is the end. They're, the, they're going to kiss. And it's like, there's a, one more problem that needs to be solved. That's this moment. Like, it's not over yet. And John includes what many have called an epilogue. It's kind of after the credits roll. And if you know anything about the book of John, you know, like, not all this stuff is supposed to be sequential. So please, don't have ideas about that. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are gospels we talk about as synoptic, meaning they're kind of following some of the chronology. Everybody's doing a different thing, but John's doing something weird, to be honest. More than following the chronology of how things happened, he's actually tracing themes. John wants you to see that Jesus is God. He wants you to see that he's divine. He wants you to see that he's sent of God to breathe life into the world. And so John's that guy that can't stop talking. Anybody have one of those in the family? So it's like one more story. You know, like the whole, like what I like to call the Midwest shuffle. Like when you're hanging out with somebody and it's like time to go. And you kind of like stand up and maybe you start to get your coat on or grab your purse, whatever. And then we just stand by the front door and we talk for a while. We're just not totally ready to go. And then it's like, well, all right, see ya. Right? Like, anybody know what I'm talking about? You all do it. I know I've watched some of you. I've watched some of you do it every week. (laughs) This is a little bit, still love you. This is a little bit of what's happening here. John's like, oh, no, 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 one more. I need to tell you one more thing that happened. So this moment is a post-resurrection appearance, and there's several that you can trace through the Gospels. Like, I count ten. Not just in the book of John, but kind of you put all the Gospels together, and so we can see him appearing to Mary Magdalene and to a group of women at the tomb, to Peter on the road to Emmaus. There's these two disciples that he comes into contact with. And then the 11 minus Thomas, that was kind of last week, right? We looked at that moment. And then we have the 11 including Thomas. So Thomas is kind of brought back into the fold and Jesus appears. And then here's seven, where we're, what we're doing today. He appears to seven disciples. So there's Peter, there's Thomas, there's Nathaniel, there's the sons of Zebedee, James and John, and then there's these two disciples that aren't named. And I'm like kind of sad for them, right? Like I sort of wonder when all this gets worked out, you're like, hey, John, what, what was the deal? Well, we were there too, right? And then number eight, uh, there's a large gathering in Galilee that Jesus appears to a bunch of people. He appears to a family member, James. And then the one that's really famous is Matthew 28, this great commission, It's where he's, Jesus is depositing into our hearts why we're all here, what we've all been called to do, and he ascends into heaven. That happens like 40 days after the resurrection. So you can kind of watch that timeline. But this is happening at the Sea of Galilee today. So Sea of Tiberias, some of your Bibles might say. And it's the same place. I just want you to kind of be able to get a visual, an image, to kind of see what this actually looks like. You know, it's about 33 miles all the way around, so you could walk it. I'm sure people do. 
but you kind of see it sort of looks like a harp, like it's kind of in that shape. That's that word Tiberius. That's where that name comes from. That's the setting of where we are today. And there's a couple moments that I want to outline for you this morning. So moment number one, this is fighting me. Peter says, I'm going fishing. I'm going fishing. Does anybody want to come with? And the group of disciples say, yeah, sure, I'd, I'd love to, to go with. And they, they fish all night, don't they? Did you notice that? And they don't come up with anything. And I think there's something really powerful in this moment in the lives of the disciples. Like, it's one thing to fail at something you're not good at. Anybody been in that chair in life? You know, of course you're going to fail because you've never done it before. But what about the moment when you fail at something you're good at? What about when you have a moment of failure in something like, oh, no, no, like I'm supposed to be good at this. And you fail in that place. That's a different kind of pain. That's a different kind of anguish. And the experience of the, the disciples, their experience of failure took place in the area of your greatest confidence. So what do you do when that happens? I remember it's like 2000. My family moves to Big Bear. Uh, my dad had just left our family, and my mom was known in our family as an awesome homemade pizza lady. Anybody in the house? Okay, so we wouldn't really order pizza. We would make pizza. She would make pizza, and we would enjoy it. And so we get to Big Bear, California, and our life is just falling apart. It's in shambles. It's so different. Nobody imagined that things were going to pan out this way, and they did. And she gathered us all together, my siblings and I, and they're like, hey, uh, we're making homemade pizza. And we're like, yeah, good. So she, makes, she starts making this homemade pizza. What you need to know about Big Bear, California, though, is that the elevation's much different. And if you, anybody's a cook, a baker in the house, you know the elevation changes how things work out. So she's making the thing that she's awesome at, that we all love, and it doesn't work out because it messes with the elevation. That's a different kind of pain. That's a different kind of hardship. And I just wonder if there's anybody in the house this morning who knows what that's like, who knows what it's like to experience failure, not in something that you're not good at, but something that you're known for. And I wonder how that has shaped you. There's this guy, this journalist, Malcolm Muggeridge. Uh, he's the reason we know, in my opinion, we know about Mother Teresa. Uh, he has spent most of his life, most of his writing, detailing her life and her ministry to the people of Calcutta. Uh, it, it was a, a, an existence for Mother Teresa that was not one of fame, but Malcolm kind of made her famous by writing about her as often as he could. And he wrote this one time, Christianity from Golgotha onward is the sanctification of failure. So Golgotha is what? That's the place where Jesus dies. In the Bible, it's all also called the what? The death of the, the place of the skull. And this sanctification, church word number 913 this morning, it just means being formed, being shaped, being made holy, being made complete. 
Like not lacking any puzzle pieces is a way that we could talk about it. And he writes this, Christianity from Golgotha onward is the sanctification of failure. And I just wonder if there's anybody who knows anything about that. But there is a process unfolding in me. And one of the ways that I am being made complete, one of the ways I am being made into the image of the one who has saved me and offered me friendship is moments a failure. The several disciples, like this was their gig. They were professionals. They knew the water. Like they knew how to do this. Like James and John, the sons of Zebedee, like their dad owned a fishing company. And they spent all night. And there's nothing. There's not one tadpole. There's not one goldfish. Nothing. Empty nets. And there's something that we don't see in the scriptures. And I just think this is interesting. That something we don't see in the scriptures is the disciples catching fish outside of the presence of Jesus. Have you ever noticed that when you read the Gospels? It never happens. The disciples don't catch a single fish outside of the presence of Jesus. Now, my assumption is if they were fishermen, they had moments where they caught fish outside of the presence of Jesus. But I think it's the gospel writers winking at us, talking about the power that Jesus has to shift things, the power that Jesus has to change things, to make them different. Because when y'all are fishing on your all's own, no fish. But then when I show up, fish. Oh yeah, and 153. Anybody feel like that's a weird detail to put in there? What on earth is going on with 153? Because I got some questions about heaven, but we know 153 fish. I can't get into it today, but it's symbolism and come to a later TED talk and I'll tell you more about it. Moment number two Moment number one, I'm going fishing. Moment number two, Jesus calls out to them from the shore. Like, hey, do y'all catch anything? How's it going out there? This is, the, this is what I like to call backseat driver Jesus. Like, how's it going over there? And of course they didn't catch anything, and so then he's like, hey, throw them on the other side, which I'm sure is something that nobody thought of before. So, thank you, Jesus, for that. This is the moment, I think, in life when you're experiencing something hard, something difficult, something confusing, and someone says to you, well, if you would just. Like, baby's not sleeping. Well, if, like, you would just, like, make sure that they've had a bottle and they're all wrapped up and just lay them in there, they should just, should just be easy. If you're having a hard time in the relationship in your family, if it's a parent or if it's a teenager, well, if you adjust. Like, seems so simple. Seems so A plus B equals C. And the disciples end up catching more fish than they can carry. Does that sound familiar to anybody in the book of John? Can you think of another moment when Jesus provided abundantly more resource, more food 
than actually was needed. There was abundance, there was extra, there was more. There's a, a little boy or a young man we don't really know, and he has a lunch, and Jesus creates a whole buffet out of it. This is what Jesus does. Moment number three. After Jesus calling out to them, John turns to Peter. So they've collected all these fish swim into their nets. You like my little net that I got on Amazon? It's pretty cool. We had some... We played some fun games in my house this week with it, so if you want to come over, you can play Catch the Fish. And John turns to Peter after this happened, and he's like, oh my goodness, it's him. It's him. And Peter cannonballs into the water. He doesn't cannonball, but something, right? He jumps, he leaves the boat. And if you caught the detail as a middle schooler in my youth group once did, that Peter has to put like something on before he jumps into the water. And I remember, I'll never forget this, teaching Sunday school and this kid's like, why is Peter naked? <laughs> and so um, that wasn't in the notes for the week and so I sort of had to fumble my way through, but I was honest, right? And the reason he's mostly naked is because he's jumping into the boat, out of the boat, in the boat, out of the boat. Like, this is not a fishing pole. This is a fishing net. So you kind of throw the net in there, you jump in, you get it all rolling, and then you jump back. So, so Peter throws some more clothes on, jumps into the water, and swims a hundred yards. I don't know the last time you swam a hundred yards was. Some of us, maybe that's a practice for us. Others of us, it's like 10 yards in, it's like, whew, maybe I should have just waited. I'm not really sure. I'm sort of regretting this decision. But he swims 100 yards. And I think this profession, like, it's the Lord. I think it shows how complex our life with God can be. Right? So, like, this is the Peter. We'll talk about this in a couple of weeks. But this is the Peter, and he's around a campfire, and he's asked like, who this Jesus person is, and he's like, oh, no, I don't know him. Like, well, weren't you with him? No, 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 like, you've got it all wrong. Like, I have no idea who this person is. And that wasn't, like, 10 years prior. I mean, we're talking, like, a couple weeks. And yet, when John turns to Peter, he's like, it's the Lord. He jumps out of the boat and into the water, and he doggy paddles to Jesus. Our life with God is complicated. Because of course we're going to have moments when we are going to fall short of what we have been called to. Of course. Of course we're going to be people who stand in need of grace and mercy and forgiveness and the kindness of God. But the thing that is constant is God's friendship. God's posture toward us. Moment number four. Jesus says, come and have breakfast. It's interesting that in the Gospels we see a lot about Jesus as teacher. We see a lot of Jesus as healer. We see a Many moments, Jesus as Savior. 
But this moment is so important because this is a moment where Jesus is friend. And we shouldn't miss it. And we can't miss it. We need this moment to understand who God is. And I don't think we should reduce Jesus to this moment. Like, he's not just a breakfast chef, right? He's not only offering friendship. So we can't boil him down. Like, we don't get boiled down to one moment. And Jesus doesn't get boiled down to one moment. But we should include this moment in our picture of Jesus. Church, don't leave this moment out. Like, don't push away, don't reject, don't step aside from the friendship that God offers. We need this moment. Like, we need to know, like, when we've been in the middle of it, when we have fallen short of what we have been called to, when we've blown it, we need to know there's a Jesus on the shore who's saying to us, come have breakfast, and we got some stuff to talk about. We need that moment. What's interesting, in Luke's gospel, Jesus is sitting at a meal, he's leaving a meal, or he's going to a meal, basically, in the book of Luke, over and over. There's like 10 times in 24 chapters, he's at a meal, he's leaving a meal, or he's on his way to a meal. And people are like, dang, Jesus liked to eat. It's more that Jesus chose again and again to befriend others. Over and over and over and over. It is Luke winking to us, yeah, he's actually human, so he needs to eat, but it's also a picture of the friendship of God. Like he's befriending those who need it. He's pouring himself into the life of others. And, and I just wonder who, are, who we are befriending in these days. I think it will be impossible to follow Jesus. I think it will be impossible to live the way of Jesus without befriending people. It's not something that will happen in isolation. I think the Lord has been kind and good enough to bring some people into our lives, into our stories, for us to befriend. And it's maybe not even about us, but it's about us stepping into their story in such a way, oh, that might shift things. That might shift the empty net into a net of provision. This morning, I think one of the worst mistakes that we can make is to push away the friendship of Christ. It's to believe. He doesn't want me on the shore. He doesn't want me close. I'm kind of going to hold him at arm's length. And I think that when we reject the friendship of Christ, when we push away this heart of friendship that he has toward us, I think there are a couple things that happen that I want to end with this this morning. Here's the breakfast. Any fish people for breakfast in the house? Didn't think so. Tilapia. Here's what happens when we push away the friendship of God. We end up trying to earn the table. Right? So, because we could read this and, you know, James and John, like they get this. 
Uh, turns out, like if you've been to a Catholic church before in your life, like these people are saints. Like they don't call them James. They don't call them John. Like these are saints. Saint Peter is a big deal. And Saint John, big deal. I mean, we have places like Saint James, Minnesota. So we think of these people differently than we think of us, and that's a mistake. If we push away the friendship of God, then we try to earn the table. We try to earn our way to have a seat at the table of God by doing more or by doing better. When Jesus is like, well, no, like the way that things change is that you be present with me. You don't work it all out first and then try to, for that to be enough so that you can be present with me. Jesus is like, no, come be present with me. And I'm going to mold you and I'm going to shape you and I'm going to renew you. And so if we're going to push away the friendship of God, we're going to become earners of the table. And it's never going to be good enough. You're never going to feel confident to have a seat at his table if you're trying to earn it all the time. And I know some of us grew up in communities of faith that really emphasized doing stuff. And today, I'm not throwing all of that out with the bathwater. I'd probably get struck by lightning. It would be quite a show for you all this morning. I'm not trying to get rid of that. I just want to show you that this moment in the disciples' life the epilogue, John 21, you, we have to include this in our picture of Jesus. Of course, he doesn't just boil it all down. And so I just wonder if some of us in the house, and we're just tempted to, to earn the table. Second thing that happens when we push away the friendship of God is we resist the table. We resist coming close to God. And instead, we find other places that are just more comfortable, other places that don't require what God requires of us. And so what we get comfortable with is being absent from the presence of Jesus. And we're absent from that presence, and so then we have all sorts of feelings about that. Guilt gets associated with that. But to embrace the friendship of God is, is just to know, like, no, you, like, you belong here. And there's safety, and there's belonging, and there's truth, and there's love, and there's forgiveness. And then the last thing that happens to us is that when we resist the friendship of God, it becomes our job to protect the table. Like, who actually gets to sit here and who doesn't? And so these kinds of people, yep. You've got, a, you've got a card at the table, but other people don't. I want to tell you about the most awkward wedding I ever performed in life. It was a couple years ago. For a couple I didn't know previously, they got my name from someone, and they said, hey, would you be willing to officiate our wedding? And I said, no way, just kidding. I said, sure. And performed the ceremony and I'm at the reception. They even asked me to pray after, so that's great when people ask to do that at the reception. And my family wasn't with me at this particular wedding. And, 
And I'm sort of looking at like all the table lists, like the guests lists, and I bet you guess which one of your best friends got left off the guest list. Happened to be the same person performing the ceremony. So it's a little awkward just because there's nowhere to sit. <laughs> so I sort of just like did like the lean against a post thing waiting for my time. And it was fine. It was not a big deal. I found a chair and just like eating, you know, awkwardly by myself. No, there's a, a friend that I knew there who was coordinating the wedding and we sat. It was fine. But I never want to forget that experience. I don't blame the couple. They had a lot going on in their life and story. And it's, all, it's all good. We're still friends. But church, I, need, I think we need experiences like that. Because I think what's sometimes true of us is we work really hard to protect the table to say who gets to sit here and who doesn't. And so I think actually that afternoon was a moment of kindness from God to me. Just to say, David, I just need you to know there are people who feel like this about my table. And that's wrong. Because I'm offering friendship. And so church, I don't want anybody in here today to push away the friendship of God. To try to earn the table. To resist the table. Or to protect the table. And I just want you, as we close, invite the band up, please. I just want you to consider this morning where, what you are led to do in the context of this conversation. Like, are you prone to... Do you lean toward earning the table? Trying to do enough, be enough? Or do you lean toward resisting the table? And honestly, some of us in the room today, we may lean and kind of fall toward protecting the table from people that we think maybe it's not been made for. Uh, this epilogue in John 21 is such a gift to us because it shows us the friendship of God. And you might say like, well, friendship of God, is that in the Bible? Where'd you come up with that? Can I talk to your seminary professor? Uh, I got it from God. In the Old Testament, he's having this conversation and we find these words. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now he should be called the friend of God. What a great thing to be called. Letter A. To be called the friend of God. And it starts with believing. He believed God, and that belief was accredited to him as righteousness. He was called the friend of God. I pray that over each and every life seated in this room today. And I pray it over this church. Oh, I want some Peter in us. That after our moments of failure, throwing the cloak on, cannonball, 100 yards swim to Jesus because we're confident that our place has not been earned place is worth not resisting and we don't need to protect it.
because the friendship of God doesn't end with Abraham. It's to spread to every corner, every house, every nation, every person in all of creation. Will you pray with me? Lord God, we thank you today for your grace and your kindness and your love, your mercy and your friendship. And there's lots of people in this room who I know have friendship wounds. And so even thinking about you in this way is difficult and there's some hurdles with it. But God, I pray that even in these moments now, through your Holy Spirit, you you would break through every lie, every stronghold, every obstacle that keeps us from that posture of welcome in your kingdom. So God, help us to not seek to earn it. Help us to not resist it and Lord, please help us to not seek to protect it because it's yours to give. It's always been yours to give and it will forever be yours to give. We thank you today for your blessing on this church and our lives. We love you. We thank you. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus who came because he loved us. Amen. Would you stand? We're going to sing a closing song together. Thank you so much for joining us on the Invitation Church podcast. I want to encourage you to take the message that you just heard and receive every part of it. Every promise from God, every declaration of his great love for you, every word of hope, every reminder that you have been made for more. Allow what you've heard to take root in your soul to allow Jesus to do the deep work that only he can do. I also want to encourage you to be part of what we are doing here at Invitation as we invite people to live the way of Jesus. Go to the app and become a regular giver, an investor in the story that God is writing in this place. Also, if you found the message meaningful, we'd love to have you share it with someone else as you partner with us in carrying the message beyond the walls of the church. I want to thank you for being here with us. Grace and peace.